Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United, our monthly Blu-ray special. Tonight we'll be talking about the month of July. July releases, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and they keep pumping them out. Yeah. And, you know, uh, some of the distributors are doing a better job of it uh, or having an easier time of it than others, I should say. They're all trying, but, you know, these are trying times. Did you take, you know, I was late to the, uh, who did the 4 for 44 special? Was that Warner Brother Archives or was that somebody? Yeah, that was Warner Archives, yeah. I missed that. And there were so many titles that I might might have wanted to pick up. I just came to it too late. But then they also had, you know, the, I guess they do it uh, twice a year or something, the Criterion Barnes & Noble 50% off mm-hmm. sale. Did you take advantage of any of those? Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I forgot who I'm talking to. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yeah, I did. I um, Well, you know, there were a lot of things before I got on their um, review list. There were a lot of things I did not get. So I'm picking up things that I didn't get that, uh, that are uh, holes in my collection. And, you know, my uh, I have an upcoming birthday, and so I had gotten uh, some money from my father. to. Uh, what day is your birthday? And it's August 1st. So we're oh, next, next Saturday. Right. Yeah, it's a milestone for me. I'll be fifty. Oh Jesus! <laughs> fifty years old, man. But oh, uh, wow, yeah, that's what I said. I'm already getting AARP stuff in the mail. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It's scary, scary to see that, man. Hmm. Yes. Well, anyway, so let's hope I live another week. But anyway, <laughs> um. So no, I, I they are having the sale, and I picked up a few things. Uh, I did. I got dressed to kill. That's one of the ones that I picked up because uh, I did not have. I had the uh, the initial Blu-ray of Dressed to Kill that Fox put out, uh, MGM whatever, a couple of years back. But this one has uh you know some other. Uh, Was it, is this Warner Brothers or Criterion? It's Criterion. Criterion. I yeah, didn't know the, they did a Dressed to Kill. They did. They did a fantastic job on it, too. New 4K transfer, and uh, Noel Bombach does uh, some of the interviews on it. And, so uh, weird. So weird. It is, isn't it? Uh, it, 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 it Noel Bombach, you couldn't think of a director that would be more of an antithesis of De Palma than Noel Bombach. I know. And yet, yet he, he worships De Palma. He does. And De Palma, in turn, says that he loves Noel Bombach. But I'm, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I think... Does he really, or is he just saying that because Bombeck is a <laughs> is a sycophant for him? You know? Yeah, you're just being a nice guy, or uh, you really feel that way. <laughs> yeah, I picked that up because uh, I I had the old one, but I wanted the new one with the um, the you know, uh, more up to date transfer, shall we say? And then I I picked up Bull Durham, which I didn't have. Um, mm. Got the, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, which mm-hmm. I did not have. And uh, Magnificent Obsession and House of Games, the uh, David Mammoth. Mammoth. Yeah, well, nice. So, yeah, those are the ones I picked up. So, I was in the mood. I don't. Yeah, buy, I, just, I, don't, uh, I don't. I don't buy Blu-rays that often. But I was in the mood to rewatch HBO's Project Greenlight, so I bought season one and two off of Amazon, and you know, what do you call it when you just sit and watch thirty hours or something? What's that called? <laughs> binge watching. Oh uh, yeah, I binge watched that over two nights, and uh, you know I like that show. They should bring that back. Anyway, I don't I like wish... any of the movies, but that's the movie. The finished movie is kind of beyond the point. 
it's it's the toils of putting it together and the mistakes that they make and you know the drama of it and that's mm-hmm. the lore of Project Greenlight. Yeah, uh, I, I, that would be. And these are well, I guess you couldn't do it right now at this present moment, obviously. But um, you know, that's something they should think about for the future. I believe. For sure. Yeah, it seems like Netflix or somebody like that would want to do it. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, so um But you well, have to you have to buy those. And yeah, because can't find them. It's true, they yeah. are not streaming on HBO Max, which HBO Max claims to include everything HBO it really doesn't, even though it's yeah. it's an extensive catalog. The reason why they don't include it is because Harvey Weinstein is mentioned throughout the damn thing. So they mm-hmm. they're not going to do that. <laughs> no, I would be willing. I haven't signed up to HBO Max. I have the uh, HBO, you know, I have the cable, and uh, so I have the HBO Go. But I haven't, uh, and the on-demand that you get on the cable. But I haven't gotten the HBO Max. I, I would, I would be interested in seeing some of the old America undercover documentaries uh-huh. from years gone oh, by. Oh yeah, yeah, that was one of the original hard-hitting expose. Uh, series, wasn't it? I mean, that was, you mm-hmm. know, I don't, like, like the crack epidemic and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and there was the one that was Oscar-nominated that one of the Maisel brothers uh, was involved with, that Abortion Desperate Choices. Oh, wow. That was one of them from, like, 90 or 91. That was really good, I remember. There was one they did on... Um, I remember there was one called Death on the Job. It was about all these work-related accidents and these horrific things that had happened to people who were whose jobs were very dangerous and all that stuff there's one about alzheimer's there was some really interesting and i used to like the uh, the autopsy ones you remember those yes those now they have all the autopsies i don't know about america undercover but they do have all with michael Bodden. oh uh, yes and, and uh, those were always fascinating to me oh yeah but uh uh you know the th- i did get hbo max and i'm going to cancel it i'm really into the new i'll be gone in the dark uh, docu-series they have which is like in its mm-hmm. sixth episode right now it's fantastic but the problem with HBO Max is that at least the platform that I have it on there's no search function oh so you, no you gotta scroll through, scroll through a thousand things to see what they have you just can't type oh. in what you're looking for at oh, least not on, my, on mine and that's like awful it's the opposite of user friendly yeah hmm that's not good well, I, uh, yeah, I, I've, um, it seems like somebody else had said that as well. I think I heard that from somebody else. Yeah. That there were, uh, problems with the, uh, yeah, well, I, um, yeah, that's, that's good to know they've got the America Undercovers up there because I was always in. And did you see the, uh, the one about the Atlanta child murders that uh, was fairly recent? That was, that was pretty decent. Yeah, it was. Whereas something that. like Netflix. I watched their new thing on the, uh, it's like a three-part series about the the mafia and how the 70s, 80s mafia and how the New York Police Department brought them down. It just felt totally inert. It felt like lazy. It just felt sleepy, that whole thing. Mm. And it wasn't well put together. Too bad. Yeah. Mm. I guess we should mention... um, some deaths that have happened of late. Oh, yeah. Three big ones this weekend and a couple of others uh, since we did our last Blu-ray show as well. So, yeah, definitely. you Go ahead and shoot. Now, Olivia de Havilland. So she's got to be the the last 
surviving cast or crew member of Gone with the Wind, right? I think so. Yeah. 104. Yeah. What? Yeah, she was. She was uh, definitely a legend. And famously fought with her sister. Is that not correct? I believe they didn't get along very well. I. You know, that's what they say, and yet I think that a big reason why she sued the makers of Feud two years ago was mm-hmm. because it portrayed that, but she didn't get along with her sister. Maybe incorrect. It's probably correct, but it was it's a sore spot for her. Oh, okay. It was. I mean, I, I, I don't honestly know. But, you know, that just goes to show at the age of 102, she filed a lawsuit against FX and Ryan Murphy for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, she, she, she still had to fire the belly at that age. Yeah, she did. Uh, I know that um, Robert Osborne was very close with her. They said that he would call her like once a week and they would have a phone conversation or something right up until he passed. And she outlived him, which was interesting because yeah. she was about 20 years older than he was so. and in all honesty that the, I love the feud miniseries I love the Betty Davis Joan Crawford's the main plot that drives it but the stuff with Olivia mm-hmm. de Havilland which is played by Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, I thought was pretty embarrassingly done and unnecessary mm. for this for the miniseries really but I thought that was a weak part of it and then we have John Saxon oh yeah another legend yeah John Saxon, Enter the Dragon, Nightmare on Elm Street, countless you know cult movies, and made a real yeah. mark in horror. Just you know yeah, one of one of those solid, almost like a solid. If if you felt that Robert Forrester could beat your ass, that's kind of what John Saxon was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he had a career that lasted, I think, from 1953 till 2017, which is pretty yeah impressive. Fun. Yeah. So and just yeah. last year, well, just last year, we checked out the Nightmare on Elm Street house in Hollywood. So you know his, really his, his his lore and his his stamp on pop culture, it's it's out there. And then Regis, and you know, um, you know, everybody likes Regis Philbin, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was watching, rewatching some of his old TV show, talk show appearances. Like his Letterman, he, he had great rapport with Letterman. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you think on the cinematic front, I, I always think of his appearance in Night in the City, the remake with De Niro that uh, Irvin Winkler did. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is actually, you know, when I first watched that movie in 92 or whenever it came out, I wasn't quite impressed with it. But I, I have watched it as an adult. And uh, I like it a lot, and I think it's a really good De Niro performance. Uh, this kind of the desperation in his performance in that movie is just fantastic. But it's telling that you know he's the he's, he wants so badly to be the New York City mover and shaker, and the pinnacle of that, as portrayed in the film, is uh, Regis Philbin playing himself. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know it's great. Don't forget he was in everything you always wanted to know about sex, but yeah, we're what, afraid what to did ask. He, what did he play in that one? <laughs> uh, you remember the uh, – there's a segment in there where they have a – it's it's a, obviously a, a parody of those 50s game shows, and it's called What's My Perversion. Okay. And uh, he's the uh, one of the hosts of What's My Perversion, or, or one of the panelists, rather. I think Jack Barry is the actual host. Mm. And, uh <laughs> 
Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty funny actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we had uh, we lost any more Coney since we last oh, talked. Oh god. Uh, yes. Of course. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely worth mentioning. I know we okay, f- <laughs> favorite uh, three to five favorite Morricone. Oh Jesus! Uh, Once upon a time in the West, obviously. Um, Orca, as I've said on the show many times. The last Cinem- episode we did together, we played Orca. As we the did, closing, and yeah. And he was still among us then, which is. Uh, it's probably what it's probably what killed him. Us playing Orca. <laughs> <laughs> Cinema Paradiso. I'm a big fan of that one. That's uh, just yeah. beautiful, gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it's so so hard to say, man. There's, so, I mean, those uh, De Palma collaborations, you know, Untouchables, Casualties of War, uh, just you know, and the obvious ones too that everybody knows, like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And uh, you know, uh, what can you say? Just a, a real legend. Yeah. And I'm glad he finally got his Oscar. <laughs> Just a couple of years ago. The thing about Morricone is he did it so long and he did so many movies. I mean, everybody mentions the number 500 mm-hmm. as the number of movies that he did. It's probably far beyond that. But, um, you know, he w- he was known to copy himself. Yeah. Uh, but that's because nobody sounded like him and he was his own influence. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when you've made that much of a mark and you're that much of an original that you are really the only one like you, the only one that really rubs off on you is you. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I love, and he did haunting scores like nobody's business. And he did these like really oddball, like what the hell is that sound? So I like investigation of a citizen beyond suspicion. I like Lolita, uh, yeah. Adrian line score. He did for Lolita. I like State of Grace, the Phil Phil Joanu film. Phil Joanu, yes. And uh, and I like um, uh, God. There was another Exorcist Two is a nutty nutty score. Yeah, I was gonna mention that one. That's great. Good lord, that score! (laughs) But it's so great. I can hear it in my. uh, It's playing in my mind right now. I can. Oh, the way he would soundtrack as a kid. The way he would use voices in his. You know, a chorus, oh, chorus yeah. of voices, but they weren't singing like this, this melodic, l- lilting tune. They were, if you take like Exorcist Two, they're like, wah 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 wah. Yep, <laughs> like, exactly. Jesus. <laughs> la la la. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the sound of a whip or something in that there Exorcist Two thing. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. just great. And then you know, nothing's more beautiful than that. Um, you know, Gabriel Zobo from the mission. I mean, there's a reason why that's one of the most beloved movie cues in history because it's just transcendent. Yeah. Yeah. He was a legend, man. And, uh, you know, he's one of the last of that generation of composers that, uh, we grew up with. Mm. Uh, there may be three that I'm thinking of that are still among us. There's, uh, Lalo Schiffer and John Williams and Dave Grusin. And I can't think of any others besides those guys that are still yeah. around that we regularly saw. Well, I do uh, recommend um, Morricone and Tarantino live at Abbey Road Studios. And it's a, like an hour and 15 minute documentary where he's recording the Hateful Eight uh, soundtrack onto vinyl with a full 100 piece orchestra in Abbey Road Studios. And it's a documentary and Tarantino's there. Kurt Russell's there, and they're all like watching him in awe, and it's a it's a great inside view at watching a master work. 
especially that first cue with the the opening prologue and to hear it performed it's just it's jaw dropping the power of it because that uh-huh. that opening theme just builds 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 and you're like how far can you take this thing? <laughs> yeah it's pretty amazing it, it, yeah he's i don't know man it uh it's it's very sad to think about losing these people i mean you know he uh i think he broke a femur i think that's what happened and um then died the following week i think that's what it was so yeah and we had uh, two others that were worth mentioning i think uh carl reiner of course obviously that's an mm-hmm. obvious you know a lot of films of his that i think um people tend to forget about they're really good i I highly recommend anybody uh, out there who hasn't seen uh, the comic with the film he made with D- Dick Van Dyke, which is it's all available on demand, one of those on-demand discs on DVD from mm. so Man, that's such a great movie. It's basically he takes the stories of uh, you know Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and a bunch of those guys, and he basically uh, mishmashes them all into one guy's life, a fictional character played by Dick Van Dyke. Hmm. And uh, the recreations of the silent movie, silent movie era, and they have all these uh, obviously movies that never really existed, but they recreate them right down to the the sound effects and the and the the the, the way the the technical way that they they were shot, you know, um, when they used to make those silent films. I mean, and Dick Van Dyke is just it's amazing those recreations of those silent films that never really existed that were just made for this. Specific, specific purpose of that film, but it's it's basically charts the life and times of this uh, uh, the you know silent movie comedian who just had his alcoholism basically got the best of him, and it's it's a really well done movie. And uh, I think uh, Where's Papa is a movie that mm-hmm. people should see too. Uh, certainly a movie that couldn't be made today. It's about you know George Siegel plays this this lawyer who wants to basically decides to kill his mother because she has um uh she has dementia and she's getting in the way of his love life so he decides too that he's going to put her put her out to pasture wow <laughs> and uh uh yeah it's a very black but a very funny one with ruth gordon as the mother and uh she's constantly looking for her deceased husband and that's where the title of the film comes from because she's constantly saying where's papa wow <laughs> It's uh, Ruth and of Gordon. course, oh God and the jerk and yeah, yeah, Ruth Gordon. She was something. She mm. was, she was, yeah. But anyway, and I guess Kelly Preston, right? That was a shock. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, that was shocking. It's a beautiful woman. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, and a lovely spirit you could feel in in her, you know, exuding from her. So, yeah, that was yes. terrible. Surprised she didn't have a bigger career, you know, with uh, some of the – just never really got to the heights that you kind of expected her to have. Yeah, uh, but – and yet, you know, she did enough, and I, I'm – you know, I would venture to guess that she was probably happy with it, what she did, you know. She did some big movies, and she co-led with Kevin Costner in a movie, and um, and then she raised a family, so. That's true. Yeah. And she always gets mentioned uh, when Mr. Skin is on Howard Stern for her scene in Mischief. So, I... Which one? <laughs> Mischief. Mischief. <laughs> yeah, that's always one of the notorious uh, topless scenes in films that get yeah. often gets mentioned. <laughs> I remember so. 
I remember those 80s topless scenes that you would just kind yeah. of try to freeze frame the... Uh-huh. What was yes. the witch board with Tani Katane or something? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I am I am of that era. Yeah. Phoebe Cates, of course, in Fast Times. That's the uh-huh. one that always everybody always talks about. A lot of them. I don't know, man. I remember back in the day when, I, you know, the libido was like a thousand percent when you're just discovering, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know... I remember being turned on by an episode of Hunter. <laughs> That's how like insatiable I was back then. Oh man, <laughs> I was right there with you. Where the where, where the female detective goes to prison, and she's trying to like uh, get out a confession from the criminal in the jail, and I'm like, oh, this is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I've never admitted that before. Okay. All right, Blu-rays. Well, let's get down to brass tacks. Yes. Uh, I want to start things off. This is kind of interesting. It ties into uh, some friends of our show. And there's a new company. It's an upstart called Cauldron Films. And the press release I got was it says, Cauldron plans to release several films on Blu-ray this year, including many that have never had a proper home video release in the U.S., some of which have only ever been released on VHS, if at all. Cauldron has a full slate of 80s and 70s cult films in the works, yada, yada, yada. So I mentioned this because they've released a 1989 cult film called American Rickshaw, and it features the Projection Booth podcast as an extra on the Blu-ray. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is directed by Sergio Martino, who also gave us Torso and The Scorpion with Two Nails. And it's about a stripper who uh, tricks a um, a man into filming a sex tape, and then he's a uh, he's a rickshaw runner, and he becomes embroiled in the murder of an evangelist evangelist's son. Sorry, <laughs> get it out. Evangelist's son, where he inadvertently takes the wrong videotape. Oh. So anyway, it's uh it anyway they did a show on that. Yeah, it happens. Uh, so the American rickshaw has. Um, has been released on Blu-ray, with and it's limited to 1,500 copies. And there's also a commentary with Cat Ellinger on here as well, Image Gallery. And so I wanted to mention that. They've also released another film, which is a more recent one, called Abracadabra. But anyway, just uh, kind of interesting there. It's a new upstart. Uh, we Twilight Time recently bit the dust, but we, now we've got mm-hmm. Cauldron Films. So there's upstarts, and there's ones that are uh, ending their... Uh, severing their ties. So anyway, we'll we'll hope these guys have some luck. Yeah. Where others have failed. So anyway, uh, speaking of the Criterion earlier, how about War of the Worlds? The 1953 War of the Worlds was released on July 7th, and it has uh, some interesting extras. It has a new 5.1 surround soundtrack that has been supervised by Ben Burt, the mm. legendary sound designer of Star Wars, has gone in and done a 4k restoration of the sound so they've uh if you ever wondered thought you would never if you ever wondered wondered what war of the worlds would sound like in 5.1 surround sound that you can now you now can find out also has uh several featurettes movie archaeologists uh a, a thing about the 2018 restoration the sky is falling and uh, several audio clips here with uh Orson Welles in War of the Worlds. So it says Welles and Welles. So, anyway, 
uh, and there's an audio interview with George Powell. Uh, so anyway, uh, the War of the Worlds has gotten the deluxe. Um, a 2019 film, we usually talk about older films, but I want to mention this, and I've mentioned it before on the show. It's such a fantastic film that I think flew under people's radar. Sorry We Missed You, which was the latest film from British director Ken Loach, who's been making films about the struggles of the working class since 1967, and this is his latest one at age 81. He's still pumping them out, and uh, this was one of my favorite films last year. Uh, c- coming on, It's uh, written by the same guy who wrote the last film he directed, I, Daniel Blake, and it's just a fantastic film about the struggles of this uh, this man who lost everything in the 2008 financial crisis, and he's trying to rebuild his life as a uh, running a, uh, a being a contract worker for a delivery as a delivery driver, and things just don't go well. Let's just put it that way. Man, I wonder uh, if there's any levity on a Ken Loach set. I know, right? It makes you wonder. Are they cracking jokes in between the setups? And yeah, <laughs> yeah, because this is his stuff is pretty serious and um, not uh, far from cheery, shall we say? But this is a powerful film. Seriously, I highly recommend uh, everybody listening to try to seek it out. Sorry we missed you. It's available from Kino Lorber, thankfully. And Black Rainbow from 1989 has been issued by Arrow Video. And this is directed by Mike Hodges and stars Roseanne Arquette, Jason Roberts, and Tom Holtz. Mm. It's about a psychic traveling rural American south with her alcoholic father promoting her mystical trade to the credulous locals. She's actually a con woman is what it amounts to. And I've never seen this one, but um, anyway, uh, Arrow Video has uh, – I remember it used to turn up on video shelves when I was – back in the day when I'd go to the video store and see Black Rainbow on the shelves. But never got around to seeing it. So anyway, that is uh, an Arrow Video release, as is Zombie for Sale from 2019. Not really familiar with that title, but anyway – uh, that's another one of theirs. The Day the Earth Caught Fire from 1961 is a Kino Lorber release. It's uh, directed by Val Guest. It's about uh, the U.S. and Russia testing atomic bombs at the same time, altering the axis of rotation of the Earth. And it's a well-regarded science fiction film that, that a lot of people say is uh, pretty good. Again, blind spot for me, but... Um, Kino has released The Day the Earth Caught Fire, as, and they've also released The Flesh and the Fiends, a 1960 horror film starring Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, they've released the 1990 <laughs> film Spaced Invaders with uh, Royal Dano. <laughs> um, MVD is another uh, one of these uh, fairly... No, Scorpion releasing. I'm sorry. This is a Scorpion, which is uh, distributed by Kino. They've released Death Warrant, the Jean-Claude Van Damme 1990 film. Mm. A few new extras. So if you're a Van Damme completist, what can I tell you? Death Warrant has been has been issued. And who isn't? I mean, I can't <clears throat> I can't tell you the number of times I've uh, I've thought about Van Damme and thought, <clears throat> is he complete yet? Is this done? well we have four films in a box set from the director umberto Lindsay, and this is uh these are all starring carol baker orgasmo so sweet so perverse a quiet place to kill and knife of ice these have all been released by severin films they were 
made between the years of 1969 and 1972, new transfers, new extras, and so uh, if you're a fan of Either one of those, uh, the director, Umberto Lindsay or Carol Baker, there you have it. So, um, Grunt, the wrestling movie from 1985, is a Scorpion releasing, uh, distributed by Kino, uh, directed by Alan Holtzman and starring Magic Schwartz. Hmm. (laughs) A documentary crew sets out to unravel one of professional wrestling's most closely guarded secrets. Is the former champion Mad Dog Joe DeCurso now wrestling as ask? If you want to find out, now you can with Grunt, the wrestling movie's <laughs> Blu-ray release. Uh, That'll be the day from 1973 is an, actually a very interesting uh, film. I did see this one recently. Uh, this was released as an import, and I picked it up. Uh, with uh, It's kind of a fictionalized story uh, a film about the early days of the Beatles stars David Essex and actually Ringo Starr and Keith Moon star in it as well and it's from 1973 and it basically is about this uh, the the main character is uh, obviously a stand in for John Lennon he's abandoned by his father at an early age and uh, he decides not to take his exams that would pave his way to a university and does a lot of dead end jobs but then he can't settle down and thinks that a life, the life of a pop musician might be the thing for him, and he gives it a try. And Anyway, uh, Ringo Starr plays one of his friends who helps him along as, uh, like I said, Keith Moon is a member of his band, uh, ironically, the drummer. What, what else would he play? And uh, Anyway, uh, they, uh, they did a sequel to this film that covers the uh, what happens to him after he finds success. Same actor played the part, David Essex. It's called Stardust, and I think that one's coming, going to be released pretty soon. I actually think the second one is a, a little stronger than the first one, although it's a little more depressing because he gets involved in substance abuse. And, uh, but anyway, uh, that'll be the day is an interesting film. For is, it use, is it used the Buddy Holly song? Uh, I believe it does. I think they play a cover of it. In the film, their their band yeah, I mean, does a lot. The title has to be has to yeah. correlate to the Buddy Holly song somehow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. It's it's. Uh, I watched it earlier this year, so I can't. But I, I do recall. Pretty sure I recall that uh, being the case. So we'll move on to July the eighth, three fifteen from 1986 was released. That's a Scorpion release as well. This was uh, directed by Larry Gross and starred Adam Baldwin. It's one of those um, where the high school is overrun by criminals and all that type stuff. Released in 1986. Um, like I said, it was a one of those things that used to turn up on video store shelves quite frequently. Uh, anyway, um, The Cycle Savages from 1969 has been issued by Scorpion Releasing, and that's uh, stars Bruce Dern. It's one of his biker films. And uh, it's interesting to note that this one also stars Casey Kasem, pre-American Top 40. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I think that's the second time. Uh, that was the first time he starred with um, Bruce Dern because I think they were in uh, uh, The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant as well. Of course well. they were, yeah. yeah. I think they were. <laughs> Casey Kasem and Bruce Dern, what a what a pair. So um, anyway, we'll move on to July the 14th with a Criterion box set for 
anyone who ever wanted all of the and we talked about this this ties back to something earlier because John Saxon is the star of Enter the Dragon Criterion has issued Bruce Lee his greatest hits which includes yes. two cuts yeah mm. two cuts of Enter the Dragon are on this as well as all the other Bruce Lee films The Big Boss Fist of Fury The Way of the Dragon and Game of Death and Game of Death That's too. amazing when you think about the people that passed that that passed right before Superstardom hit Mm-hmm. Of which Bruce Lee is definitely one, because Enter the Dragon wasn't it like only like a week or two before the Enter the Dragon premiere at Mans. Yes, when he died, uh, and that so. makes him a global superstar. You know, I was talking about this earlier yeah. with my mother too. We we're talking about old soul singers, and you know the fact that Otis Redding died before Sitting on the Dock of the Bay came out. It's yeah, like, that's it's unbelievable, remarkable. It really is. Yeah, this that was the one that would have – it does make you wonder. It gives you pause for thought. What would he have done had he lived? I mean, how would – you know, what kind of parts would he have taken? Would he have become – Right. Uh, the it's just Jackie a shame that he wasn't able to the, – Capitalize. The, the, yeah, the success that he had fought for finally came to fruition but after he died. You know, it's just mm-hmm. a sad, tragic thing that he wasn't able to enjoy that ride. It really is. It really is, and it makes you wonder if he if he would have eventually taken the Jackie Chan route and done some, you know, American, uh, more oh, American sure. films. I'm like sure. That, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, America would have tried to put him in a bunch of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe he would have even uh, turned up in a disaster movie at some point. Or uh-huh. some, <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah. It's to see if he could karate chop himself out of the Sorry. out of the crashing airplane. Airport 79, The Concord, starring Bruce Lee. and <laughs> Yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, so the lady – well, anyway, there are new transfers on all these Bruce Lee titles and lots of extras, um, too, too numerous to mention really. But there's uh, – it's it's a pretty massive box set that includes pretty much everything he did between 1971 and 1981. I, uh, it includes the one that you often mentioned, the one with that he did with Gig Young that was incomplete and they God. put the – so awful. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you got to see. And it's a scene that comes up early in the movie where they're uh-huh. they're actually holding up that face paddle in front of the double. <laughs> I mean, they don't even attempt to hide it. It's in the first 10, 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. And yet, you, and yet the movie does contain the completed fight scene with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, it has stuff in it. Yeah. But uh, a lot of it is this double, and it's just awful it would have been better just not to, to I, I don't know i mean this was a time when they didn't really have they weren't putting extras on anything here's the unreleased bruce lee footage you know mm-hmm. so you didn't have to do it but it, i mean if it was today they would have just put it as an extra all the finished bruce lee stuff on a disc but they didn't have that yeah. back then so they had to finish the movie yeah and maybe the insurance company wanted to didn't right. want to pay. You never know. It gets tricky with those sorts of things. Well, anyway, The Lady Eve is another Criterion release. Uh, the classic comedy written and directed by Preston Sturges and starring Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. This still holds up. I rewatched it recently and um, pretty pretty good stuff. Includes the uh, an audio commentary from 2001 with film scholar Marion Keene. Uh, introduction from 2001 by filmmaker Peter Bogdanovich. I know he's a tremendous fan of this film. 
A uh, new conversation among writer-director Preston Sturges, biographer and son Tom Sturges, along with James L. Brooks, Ron Shelton, critics Susan King, Leonard Malton, and Kenneth Turan. That's very interesting, by the way, because they, they did that post in the COVID era. So it's um, they they did it all obviously via Zoom, but it's a it's 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 a panel that they did that way, and they they it looks pretty pretty professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they did a pretty good job. I guess it was the best they could do under the circumstances, but um, it's nice to know they're carrying on uh, in spite of uh, the ongoing pandemic. New video essay by uh, David Carnes and costume designs by Edith Head, and a Lux Radio Theater adapt adaptation of the film from 1942 and an audio recording from 2013 of Up the Amazon uh, a song from an unproduced stage musical based on the film so anyway uh, The Lady Eve has been issued by Criterion and I'm glad because it's a it's one of Preston Sturge's better better films I think and it gets better on repeat viewings yeah. it really does yeah so anyway the 25th anniversary of of Clueless has been issued. Um, you know, there's not really anything new to report on this one. I don't think it's a new transfer. I don't think it's new ex- any new extras. Everything's pretty much been ported over, but I do think that there's a, um, a steelbook edition of it in case you want something collectible. It, um, uh, like I said, it's not, nothing really new to report, but it has been uh, reissued as a 25th anniversary edition to observe that passing. The 2003 film The Missing, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Kate Blanchett, directed hmm. by Ron Howard. Uh, that's been issued as a Shout Select title hmm. with new extras. You ever, watch, just, you ever watch The Homesman? I uh, did not. Mm-mm. That's a really good movie. He's uh, Tommy Lee Jones is a really good director. Yeah, he is. I loved his... Uh, the the, uh, the three uh, the three burials of uh, God yeah. I never completed but anyway uh, it's that's great that's a good one yeah he's good yeah we should direct more films I really do um, so Kiss of the Vampire has been issued that's a shout or sorry a Scream Factory release it's one of the Hammer Vampire films from 1962 released by Universal in America. As a new 4K scan, a new audio commentary with film historian author Steve Haberman and film historian Constantine Nasser. A new featurette called The Men Who Made Hammer. And um, God, Steve Haberman's all over those movies. Commentary. Yeah. He's very knowledgeable about them, for sure. Audio commentary with the actor Edward D'Souza, Jennifer Daniel, and both of them who appeared in the film. Deleted scenes, actually. It's hard to believe they can still find deleted scenes on a film that old, but they did in a theatrical trailer. So A Kiss of the Vampire has been issued. And um, The Pale Face from 1948, the Bob Hope film, Jane Russell, that has been issued by Kino, as has Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, starring Burt Lancaster and Joan Fontaine, speaking of uh, Olivia de Havilland's sister, ties back also to an earlier conversation we had. And uh, let's see. We have several other things here. Hiroshima from 1953 is an Arrow release, and uh, this is a, a documentary 
Actually, I'm sorry, it's not a documentary. It is a docudrama. Uh, the film shows the bombing of Hiroshima and the horrific aftermath following the detonation of an atomic bomb on humans for the first time in history. And it's uh, it's a Japanese docudrama. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to massacre the director's name, but uh, anyway, it's a new transfer of Hiroshima and some new extras. Arrow does a great job on this sort of thing, and so uh, I guess that would be this would be what the uh, 75th anniversary of the the bombing of Hiroshima, so I guess that's why it's being issued. Yeah. So, the 1941 film Never Give a Sucker an Even Break with W.C. Fields is being issued by Kino as well, also with a few new extras. Another Kino release is a 2019 film called Baccarat, which got really good reviews. Um, it's a foreign film about a... Uh, uh, this young girl who comes to her grandmother's village in the near future Brazil to find a succession of sinister events that mobilizes all of its residents. And um, it's kind of a thriller, mystery type thing, but it got really good reviews. I am really haven't gotten around to it, but just wanted to mention it for anybody who um, was curious about it or had heard of it. Um, Jungle Holocaust from 1977 has been issued by Code Red, which is also distributed by... Also distributed by Kino, um, and um, you know it's one of these Italian uh, zombie films or cannibal films. I'm sorry, but has a cult following. We have the final film from Lucino Visconti. Lucino Visconti, sorry. Uh, this is The Innocents. It was how it was released in America, or Late Innocent. In its native country, and this stars uh, Jennifer O'Neill, and it's about a man who flaunts his an aristocrat who flaunts his mistress to his wife, but when he believes she's been unfaithful, he becomes enamored of her again. Giancarlo Giannini also stars in the film, and Laura Antonelli. This is being uh, issued by Film Movement, and it's full complete unedited version I think it's been truncated here in previous editions The Innocent so Yeah the or the Innocent The Innocent, the innocent. Or, okay Yeah the Innocent or Le La Innocent <laughs> Sente Anyway Anyway uh pretty well reviewed or you know well regarded So anyway wanted to mention that um I think it has uh, it's a few extras there's a new video essay by author Ivo Blom, and a 16-page booklet. So, anyway, just wanted to mention that as well. Um, all the those Bruce Lee titles, by the way, are being issued separately. If you choose to not buy the box set, if anybody's interested and just want to get certain certain films from that box set, you can get them separately. So I wanted to go on the record and and mention that and we move along to July 21st and we have uh, Marriage Story the Oscar nominee for Best Picture from this year actually or released last year but Oscar nominated this year this is the one of course we were again coming back to an earlier conversation Noah Baumbach uh, directed and wrote this film you know, celebrated film with Scarlett Johansson and uh, Adam Driver uh, that has 
a new transfer, um, lots of new extras, behind the scenes stuff. So um, anyway, uh, I'm glad to see that the Netflix films, I was a little worried that some of the Netflix films might not ever be released in a physical format. Thankfully, Criterion is picking up the mantle, and I I think The Irishman is coming pretty soon as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, thankfully, those are those are being issued in physical format, uh, 4K – uh, release of Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus, which I, I would, I guess, would be what his that would be his most impersonal film, wouldn't you say? Since he was a director for hire on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, when you think about impersonal and Stanley Kubrick, a lot of people think even his best films are impersonal. <laughs> That's true. But is the one that he was least invested in from a from a, a personal That's... artistic standpoint? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you watch it, you can kind of tell there are moments where it seems like he's he's really enjoying what he's doing, and then there there are some scenes where you just feel like he's going through the motions. It's it's a weird uh, mixture of both. Of, yeah. can, but he delivers. You know, to his yeah. to his credit, he delivered what the movie needed, which was Hollywood spectacle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, that's true. Very true. Gave him what they asked for. Well, uh, Paramount continues their Paramount Presents line of titles. They started those back in April, and they've uh, they're up to number eight now in the in the series. And number seven and eight were released in the month of July. Number seven is Airplane in a 40th anniversary edition, which you know comes right in the month that the original was released. 40 years ago, uh, there are some new features here. Filmmaker Focus, where you have writer and directors Jim Abrahams, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker in a new talk about Airplane, and a Q&A with the directors of Airplane at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood hmm. from January 10th of this year. Hard to believe that uh, such things were like that were going on in this same calendar year, but they were. Uh, the isolated score and the original commentary – I think uh, people might want to hold on to their earlier uh, copies of Airplane if they have it, though, because uh, the previous Blu-ray edition has deleted scenes that are not being carried over to this new edition. So anyway, mm. but the new edition does have some new features that are make it, if you're a huge Airplane fan, which I am, make it worth picking up. And it also has, uh, it, it opens up to reveal uh, a reproduction of the original film's artwork. So it's it's kind of neat the packaging. Yeah. So anyway, uh, and then we have Ghost, which is being issued in a 30th anniversary edition, with a new again Jerry Zucker, who also was a co-director on Airplane. He was the solo director on Ghost. So there's a filmmaker focus piece with him talking about that, and the original special features have been carried over. Commentary by Jerry Zucker and the writer Bruce Joel Rubin. Alchemy of a Love Scene featurette, theatrical mm. trailer, and Ghost Stories, the making of a classic. So, Ghost has been observed for its 30th anniversary. Yeah, yeah, I'd reach out to Bruce Joel Rubin, and he was like, uh, I'm currently in the middle of a writing project. I can't uh, I can't talk to you. I said, okay, you want me to check back in with you in a month? And he said, sure. And I checked back in with him after a month, and he was... I think he said, I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't gotten back to him. But 
He's a guy. You know, I I like him. Uh, I do. Um, I know I'm probably in the minority on this, but I like his uh, 1990. Uh, 1993 film that he directed, uh, My Life with Michael Keaton. Yeah, uh, it's the one where he's videotaping his. You know, I kind of had this reputation for being a little syrupy and overly sentimental, right. but I, I revisited it a couple of months ago, and I, I, you know, a lot of those movies from the early 90s just don't hold up for me that I that I held in high esteem back then, and I was kind of went into it with some trepidation, but I really was swept up in it. I thought this movie's got a lot of real true emotion in it, and. Uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. So, and of course, he wrote Brainstorm. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the cast list for Aaron Sorkin's new movie, the 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 Trial of the Chicago Seven? I did not. Because you mentioned Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's in it. So is uh, Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, John Carroll Lynch, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Frank Langella. It's got a really exciting cast. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that's great. So apparently, whoever was the original financier of this, Aaron Sorkin wrote and directs it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was Paramount or somebody, and because of the the plague, uh, they sold it to Netflix, and Netflix is going to air it in October. Oh, wow. Yeah. That it's, uh, yeah, I'm excited so about that. So now you have Netflix saying... Even movies that the studio already made, they're like, we'll take it off your hands. <laughs> you know. Nice. Well, that's uh, that's good for us because yeah. we, we like those kind of movies. And if you're a serious film fan, that's uh, it's catnip for us. So what about this um, the Helter Skelter thing that uh, Epics is running? You, I think you got a chance to look at that. Yes, I did. Yeah. It's, it starts tonight, and we're recording this on Sunday the 26th, and so the first mm-hmm. installment start, starts tonight on Epics. It's a six-part, six-hour docu-series. Basically, on the Manson family, it's a, it's a deep dive into the story that we, if you know anything about it, you already know the story. So uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was, uh, I mean, there's some places in it where you see footage that you've never seen before, which is valuable for someone that follows this stuff like I do. But at the same time, it, it makes really no attempt at uh, looking beyond the story that we've heard for the past 50 years. And, on, and, and the, the whole title of it is Helter Skelter in American Myth. So that leads you to believe, oh, they're going to break down, you know, the, the whole Helter Skelter motive is a myth. Uh, but they don't do that. They don't do that. They don't even pay lip service to it until literally the last five minutes of a six hour movie. They say, who knows oh, if this is really how it happened? <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, it's disappointing. It's kind of a cheat. Yeah. Yeah, and the whole second episode deals with Manson himself and his childhood, and anyone that's read Jeff Gwynn's book on the topic knows all of that already, but, you know, it's worth going through in documentary form for everyone that doesn't read. <laughs> and I'm sad to say I think there are a lot of folks who don't. Oh, wow. Well, I had high, high hopes for that because Epics has been doing some pretty good stuff. Yeah, they're Laurel uh, Canyon. I thought the Laurel excellent. Canyon. Oh, excellent. I was going to say that was great. That was so much better than uh, Echoes of the Canyon. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was ten times better than that. So, yeah, that was that was good, good stuff. So, yeah, I had high hopes. Mm, sorry to hear that. She's very sweet, though, the director. I, I liked her very much, and she was appreciative of of us spotlighting the movie. You know, it's worth seeing if you, mm-hmm. you know – but if you're into that kind of thing, 
you're going to watch anyway. You know, just because it's oh, yeah. you enjoy seeing the retreads as well. <laughs> yes. I'll probably have have to see it, truth be told. But anyway, well, uh, well, another Criterion release. Uh, this this one from uh, from the Tuesday the twenty first, and that was uh, Taste of Cherry, the nineteen ninety seven film. It's about an Iranian man who drives his truck in search of someone who will quietly bury him under a cherry tree after he commits suicide. And uh, well regarded. I know it was. Uh, I I saw it years ago. It was a little too uh, leisurely paced for my taste. Uh, I might feel better about it now, but anyway, uh, it has been issued by Criterion with some new extras and a new transfer. So just want to mention What's it. What's taste of A taste of cherry. Oh, a taste of cherry, right? Yeah, from 1997. Right. And the 1981 Oscar winner for Best Foreign Film has been issued by Kino. That's Mephisto, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, that's, um, yeah, it was the 1981 film from a director, Istvan Zabo. I know I'm probably butchering that as well. It's uh, He was a Hungarian director, of course, and it concerns a passionate but struggling actor played by Klaus Maria Brandauer. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Remains in Germany during the Nazi regime and recaps, uh, sorry, reaps the awards of the Faustian Pact by finally achieving the stardom he has long craved. Man, there was that, there was that odd period of time when he was getting work back in the 80s. He yeah. did the Klaus Maria Brandauer. He did the Never Say Never Again as the villain mm-hmm. and then he did a movie called streets of gold that played like on cinemax nonstop. yeah <laughs> play like a boxing trainer or something that's true and he was uh in out of africa as well right right the other man in meryl streep's life mm-hmm. wow what this is a blind spot for me i know the title of course because it comes up in conversation a lot but I know it got glowing reviews. I know Ingmar Bergman, there's a blurb on the back of the disc that says, this film is a work of art, as the quote from Ingmar Bergman. Um, <laughs> and uh, Roger Ebert said, one of the greatest movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Fat <laughs> Boys movie? <laughs> uh, one of the greatest movie performances I've ever seen, says Roger Ebert. So anyway, Mephisto, the 1981 Oscar winner for Best Foreign Film, available from Kino... Classic. Did you watch that? Uh, I forget which one it is. I don't know if it's Bergman Island. There's two Bergman documentaries. I think it's Bergman Island, though, where all the directors walk through his house. Uh, I did see that. Yes. Yeah, and the, and they walk into this video room that's just wall to walls with DVDs and video cassettes and a lot of American films you wouldn't think would be in Bergman's personal collection. I mean, it's all right there. That was interesting. It was, it was, and uh, I forget which director it was. Um, it was one of the directors. She she had to leave. I remember that she said it was very uncomfortable. She felt like she was eavesdropping or, you know, uh, invading his personal space, and it yeah. felt too weird. And she had to go. And yeah, get yeah over it was. It. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Is that place um, open for tourists? I mean, do people still? Do, does his family still live there? I don't even know. 
I don't think it's available for tourists to come in. I think you have to have a special invite from the family or Is something. It considered like a con- country landmark or something that they maintain? I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, like a I, Graceland? I'm not sure about the like a Graceland for Bergman? Graceland for cinephiles. Yeah, that's 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 true. Uh, Another would, thing with Graceland, I didn't realize you can't go up to the bedroom. Yeah, I think that's I've heard that. So you can't see the actual uh, the the final uh, the yeah. place where I mean, what's the point if you final breath? Yeah, what's the point if you can't see that toilet? I mean, that's <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, why why would you not? Uh, I, the jungle room is open, isn't it? That's the infamous jungle room that he. I think that I think that part of it is open. But yeah, I don't know. I don't anyway. I don't know a lot of the Elvis lore. I mean, I just know the bare bones stuff. I, I think he recorded his last album in the jungle room. That's why I say that because uh, the one that had uh, Moody Blue and uh, Way On Down and his last chart records because it had gotten to the point where he basically was too lazy to go to the recording studio and so they brought the recording studio to his home uh, and they still had trouble getting enough recordings out of him to make an album i think uh they augmented the final album with several live performances because they, they couldn't get enough material out of him even with the recording studio being at his own home he still they still couldn't get him together enough to <laughs> yeah, I, I remember liking the the documentary that was made by the guy that did the uh, the Jinx. Uh, I can't remember mm-hmm. what it was called. It was, might have been called The King or something. But it was it was from a couple years ago when he was trying to contrast Elvis's downfall with America's, and he was yeah, there, going was to all the haunt yeah. all the haunts of Elvis. Yes, I think I remember also. thinking that it was an interesting. Uh, concept that wasn't totally realized, mm-hmm. but uh, but you can see that. I mean, you could see the overwhelming fame and popularity and riches and people serving you hand and foot, and and how that kind of can can spoil and ruin you. Oh yeah. Uh, and the fact that he tried to contrast that with what happened to America in the t- you know of what happened. Immediately in the wake of his death, with with corporations and greed and all of that kind of stuff, that was interesting. It was. It was an interesting movie. I uh, I saw it as well. And um, you know, a lot of interesting celebrity uh, anecdotes in there too. That I mean, uh, little comments that they had. I think they had Alec Baldwin in there and several others. I can't remember. And even beforehand, yeah. I mean, I mean, Elvis. Let's be honest. He 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 adopted black music as his own. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and was praised as this kind of front runner for it, and uh, you know that can echo a certain period of that can echo American history as well. <laughs> so that was interesting. That is true. Yeah, he and uh, Pat Boone both were guilty of <laughs> taking those, you know, a lot of those R and B records. Funniest and- thing Dean ever said on the show. Was he said, yeah, when Pat Boone sings Tutti Frutti, he's actually singing about fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember that. That's true. That no argument there. Yeah, that's it's it's just amazing when you if you listen to 
those Pat Boone recordings, and they sold millions of copies. Yeah. It's amazing. Ooh, He's amazing. one of the big, biggest selling artists in the 50s, and yet you, you listen to them, and they have no soul no. whatsoever. None. No. It's just amazing. But anyway, several Kino releases here um, that I'll mention. Arabian Nights from 1942, The World in His Arms from 1952, starring Gregory Peck and Anne Blythe, uh, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, from 1944, Buccaneers Girl, starring Yvonne DiCarlo from 1950, and Son of Ali Baba, starring Tony Curtis and Piper Laurie from 1952. Hmm. So quite a a batch of those 40s, 50s swashbuckler-type things in that group. Uh, You Don't Know Me, the documentary about the – Showgirls and its lasting question impact. <laughs> uh, I know you interviewed the director of this this one, so oh, Showgirl, oh that movie, yes, yeah, okay. You don't know me, yeah. You don't know me, right? Yeah, I haven't seen it. So yeah, I'm... it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all I have to say. <laughs> leave it at that. We'll move along then. Uh, Bloodstone from 1988 is an Arrow video release, another one of theirs. And um, again, this is one that I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with. It's uh, directed by Dwight Little, who oh, made yeah. the ha- Halloween Four, and I think he did that. That's the one that people like, right? It's a Halloween Four or Five that they, because one of them's awful and one of them people like. I can't remember which is which. Well, I thought they were both terrible, but uh, Halloween 4 never made sense to me. Never made sense at all because clearly at the end of Halloween 2, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis survives, and then we have Dr. Loomis obviously being blown to smithereens. You know, when he says, Michael, it's time, and he lights the, you know, he lights up the rooms filled with gas, and he lights it up, big explosion. So then the movie opens up, we find out. Jamie Lee Curtis is dead and he's alive. So oh. the, it's the complete opposite, which, you know, right from the get go, they throw any semblance of, uh, of anything making sense. They just throw it to the wind. So damn them. I expected and, so much more from a Halloween four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you gonna do? God, where does logic come into this? Well, this ties back to something earlier too. Dwight Little directed uh, *Rapid Fire*, the um, oh Brandon Lee Brandon Lee film. So yeah, anyway. But anyway, yeah, it's, I uh, I bought a subscription to Shutter so I could watch their cursed film series. Really? Yeah, it's five episodes, and 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 *The Crow* is one of them. Uh, *Exorcist* is one of them. *The Omens* one of them. *Poltergeist*, and then the final one is. Twilight Zone the movie and I bought it so I could watch that episode and they do interview a couple of people that I mean they interview one guy that was a location manager he built the Vietnamese village in this ravine called Indian Dunes in California where the tragedy happened and they interview Stephen Farber who's the co-author of the outrageous conduct book about the 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 tragedy and the trial that ensued Uh, it was released something like 40 years ago and if you try to buy it now it'll cost you about $300 in paperback um, so, uh, and it was fine, but, uh, they let John Landis off the hook a little too much. I really do think he's responsible. Yes. It was an accident that it was an accident. There was, there's no plan for an accident f- to occur. However, 
the conditions they set in place, the plan that they did make, is the thing that made that accident possible. Yeah. And it's a direct result of his... uh, First of all, and I was reading, like, the directors... A lot of directors stood by his side. I mean, there were a lot of people that, that filled out one of those forms with signatures and stuff of all the Hollywood directors, and Francis Ford Coppola was included in that. A lot of people voicing support for him. De Palma did not refuse, and then James L. Brooks refused as well. He said, I don't understand. He hired these children illegally, he paid them under the table, and they both ended up dead. It's like, how 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 is he in the clear on this? Yeah. Yeah, I just don't like him. I mean, which is a shame, because when I hear him talk about movies, he's a great raconteur. Oh, he's great. You know, and yet, uh, he really... His behavior did result in the death of three people. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get a, it's hard to get around that. No and doubt. And you hear about his shitty attitude in the aftermath of it. You know, d- demanding to speak at Morrow's funeral, even though the family didn't want him to, and he just got up and talked about how great movies were and how he was proud to direct Vic Morrow and what he said was his famous favorite performance of his, and and then you know he's just an ass. And then they they acquit him. The jury acquits him, so he invites them all to a special screening of Coming to America. And then you read this great older interview with Eddie Murphy talking about bringing John Landis in to direct Coming to America. Have you ever read that? I have not. What Eddie Murphy really thinks of John Landis? It is an amazing stretch of interview. It was probably like a Playboy interview or something. But he just reams into Landis. No love there. Huh. <laughs> I can't. I gotta find that. He said the only reason why I hired him for coming to America is because you know I was gonna give him another chance to get back in the, in the game after the whole Twilight Zone thing, and he was nothing but a pain in the ass to me, until uh, you know an egotistical maniac on set until I threatened to kick his ass, and then he straightened up. You know, Eddie was saying this about John Landis. Yeah. Well, they they worked together three times. So they I worked guess together they again, them. like oddly. On yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 3. I was going to say, yeah, because there was Trading Places. And uh, then there was, yeah, like you said, Coming to America. And then, so, yeah, I don't think, I think they were just, uh, yeah, you could see Beverly Hills Cop 3. They were just kind of phoning it in, so to speak. I think they were just going through the motions. Yeah. Mm. Oh, boy. I'd like to read that interview. It's still live, though. You, yeah, it's easy to find. They, it actually, it actually started going viral last year i think because scott weinberg brought it up in one of his posts and uh everybody started sharing it a lot of people that weren't even aware you know in this cursed films the location manager he does start crying during the interview because he's like you know i'm the one that built you know i'm the one that built the thing the place where he was killed and those mm. kids were killed and and can you imagine i mean the kids parents kept asking is this safe is this safe and and Landis's assistant said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." And they were right there when they and they watched their kids being cut in half Jeez. by that helicopter blade. I remember when that when that happened too. Um, I, I remember it just like yesterday when it was on the news, and because I was excited about that movie, you know, because I was a big sci-fi horror movie guy. I was about I was about eleven when that happened. I remember, and and uh, yeah, just couldn't couldn't believe it. Yeah. And you know, the, and a lot of the players are still alive. 
Uh, they are. Yeah. I have their emails. I was thinking about reaching out, but I don't know. The 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 actual pilot of the plane, Dorsey Wingo, he wrote an autobiography mm-hmm. about ten years ago, and he talks about it. And it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. But, I mean. where he was it truly was an accident but they were warned previously you know those explosions are getting too close to that helicopter and landis said you should see what we're going to do later on when we actually film the thing you ain't seen nothing you ain't seen nothing yet Mm. yeah that's that's scary he talked about it once in like a fangoria interview there's a video of it on youtube and he talks about twilight zone landis does because the interview actually questions him about it. And Landis talks about, you know, with a smile on his face, he says, yes, I think about it every day. And uh, it never leaves you. But, you know, accidents happen, blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. Like, you know, an explosion did not actually rock the helicopter. That's not why it went down. And then uh, the interviewer actually asked him, so what really did happen? And he says, we're not going to talk about Twilight Zone all interview, are we? Let's go, go move on to something else. So he, he he could talk it, but he can't back it up. Yeah. So he still has, you know, he's just a prick. Sorry. But that doesn't mean he can't make good movies. I'm not he's, oh criticizing yeah, he's that. Oh, yeah, good ones. No doubt about it. He's He's got some good ones on his resume. Yeah, that's uh, it's just unfortunate. You know, there's a good thing on that, too, on the um, findadeath.com, Scott Michaels. Uh, he's got an interesting piece on there where he actually went to find the location where it ha- happened. Yeah, closed up. Yep. Yeah, and he had to get somebody to uh, point him in the right direction, but he found it. Or, or maybe it wasn't – I don't know if it was him, but maybe it was one of the people who commented on, on the page. But anyway, there's somebody in that article that, that actually found it. They, yeah, there's a Google map that really pinpoints the exact location, but it was bought by a private company. It was, uh, I think, in the <laughs> late 80s or something. Yeah. And uh, – and you can't access it. I mean, it's totally closed up because a lot of vloggers have gone there and tried to do it since, and it's just not possible. Uh, yeah. But I think the movie that shot right after that, I don't know if it was right after or right before, was William Freakin's Deal of the Century, shot in that exact ravine. Uh, and uh, a lot of movies did at that time. Mm. Interesting. Sorry, that was my soapbox. No, that's that's uh yeah, that's it's always interesting to. I've got that book too. I've got that paperback, outrageous conduct. I didn't know it was worth that much. Uh, yeah, that much money. Interesting. I bought it years ago. It's good stuff. Uh, so Bloodstone air from Arrow Video, as I was mentioning earlier, it's about a <laughs> going back to twenty minutes ago. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all good. Um, but it's uh, this is one I wasn't really familiar with, but uh, it's about a couple who honeymoons in India, and there's a kidnapping, and they they get involved in all kinds of intrigue. So anyway, Bloodstone from 1988, new transfer, new extras on that. And Universal has reissued a bunch of their catalog titles, uh, In the Name of the Father from 1993, Biscuit from 2003, Reality Bites. Um, and Larry Crown from 2011. So oh, wow. all those have been issued from Universal and a couple more uh, titles from Kino Classics, Colonel Reddle from 1985 and Confidence from 1980, both of those from the same director of Mephisto. And then we'll move along to July 28th. And uh, there's a title here I'm sure you'll be interested in. I'm sure you know about this 
but I'll mention it anyway. The Tenant is being released on Blu-ray by Shout Factory. Good. The Roman Polanski from 1976. Yeah, we did an excellent examination of that on the projection booth. I think sure that's, did. that's worth listening to if you're interested in the tenant. Me and Alex Winter. Yeah, you guys did a great job. I I, uh, I loved it. Ted. Yes. <laughs> he knows his stuff, though. He really does. Very smart. And we did that like it. It was something like 8 o'clock in the morning for him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, that's an early hour to be deep diving into the tenant. I said, can you join us next <laughs> Sunday at 5 a.m. to do an episode on Sallow? I mean, would you be willing to do that? <laughs> Did you uh, – have you seen his new movie that's uh, the kids, running on – show, Showbiz Kids? Yeah, Showbiz Kids. I yeah. haven't seen it yet, no. I haven't either. I was just wondering. I have I have it uh, ready, to, ready to roll. Just haven't gotten to it. So anyway, here's the special features on Roman Polanski's The Tenant. We have new apartment to let. An interview with co-star, our co-writer and director, and star Roman Polanski. So they actually did get Roman Polanski as, an, as a bonus for this, for this release. Oh, a new, a new interview. Uh, the, a new interview, yes, uh, specifically about the tenant. So, worth. Uh, so anyway, uh, the Invisible Performer, an interview with assistant cameraman Francois Catoni. New interview uh, with script supervisor Sylvette Bod. Baudrault, Baudreau, sorry, a visit to the locations of the tenant. Oh, nice. And new audio commentary with Troy Howarth and Nathaniel Thompson, and the tenant, an audio essay by Sam Deegan. So there you go. Um, wow. And a couple of audio interviews there with, uh, we have one with Gerard Brock, the co writer, in an interview with uh, writer Roland Topar. So anyway. Cinematography uh, pretty- by Sven Nyqvist. Nyqvist. That's right. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, odd odd movie. Still my favorite trailer of all time. Oh yes. Because Great. it's just it's just that that uh, slow dolly as the shadowy Polanski opens the door to this apartment and the voiceover saying, "No one does it to you like Robin Polanski." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, my God, that's so like kind of insensitive now. That we know everything we know about Polanski. Oh uh, yeah. Well, you know, I may I may have to pick this one up. They, they didn't offer us a review copy of this one, but I may have to get it. I have the old bare bones uh, Paramount, but I'd like to see the new interview with uh, Polanski talking about it. I'm, that's a pretty good get, uh, I yeah. think. To get him to do that. So terrific. So uh, Thirteen Ghosts is another Screen Factory release. This uh, is the remake, of course. From 2001, when they were doing that sort of thing, you know, Warner Brothers was pumping out some of those. Uh, the Joel Silver, Robert Zemeckis, they were producing these things, and there was the other one, The House on Haunted Hill, was another one. And anyway, they uh, this one has uh, new interviews with Shannon Elizabeth and uh, John DeSantis, producer Gilbert Adler, uh, audio commentary with Steve Beck, production designer Sean Hargroves, um, and makeup effects artist Howard Berger. Uh, 13 Ghosts Revealed, Ghost Files, Trailer. Anyway, it's collector's edition from Scream Factory if you're a fan of the remake of 13 Ghosts. And then we have a couple of uh, – well, we also have Wonder Woman Complete Collection. The Complete TV series has been issued on Blu-ray from Warner Brothers wow. as well. Krista Helm is in the yeah, episode called go. Beauty on Parade. Tying 
tie, call back to our earlier conversation. It's true. Apocalypto has been reissued on Blu-ray. It has been out of print for many, many, many years. Mm. This is Mel Gibson's follow-up to The Passion of the Christ, and pretty, pretty good film, I would say. Um, Disney was the original yeah. distributor on this. It's <laughs> so weird. So they, uh, for obvious reasons, they uh, they they have uh, let this lapse, and somebody else picked up the distribution rights, and so now it's been issue, reissued. Uh, so now it's back in print. Samuel Goldwyn Films has issued it actually, but uh, I had the original Disney Blu-ray of it, and and I decided to. Uh, to sell that one while I had an opportunity, so <laughs> and I did. Uh, Graveyard Shift from 1990. This is another screen, the Screen Factory release of Stephen King's Graveyard Shift. Not one of the bright spots in the uh, the catalog of Stephen King adaptations, oh. but from anyway, I know it has its defenders. It's like pretty said, obvious I, what the bright spots are in his filmography, <laughs> yeah. because I mean the, the 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 distance in quality between the really good ones and the really awful ones are. Very apparent. <laughs> this is true. Very, very true. Yep. Well, anyway, Graveyard Shift has been issued with a new transfer and new extras from Scream Factory. And um, Best Friends from 1975, no relation to the one with uh, Burke. Yeah, the female, the I can't remember her name that made this movie, but uh, what Susan is her name? Benton? Suzanne Benton? Yeah. And uh, Richard Hatch is in this one. Mm. Yeah, this is an early performance from him. Anyway, two young couples taste the free and easy life of on a cross-country motorhome tour until love backfires and tragedy follows. This is a Vinegar Syndrome release. So, a couple of Warner Archive releases. Uh, two of the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, Let's Put on a Show films that they they were so known for. One of them is Strike Up the Band. That's from 1940, and it has a new uh, – well, not new. This is obviously not new, but it has an archived introduction by Mickey Rooney, and it has uh, a cartoon, a vintage cartoon on I hope here. It's and it's not new. No, I <laughs> – might, have, might be something you don't want to see. Uh, the interesting thing that it has on here is it has one musical sequence that was re- that they actually filmed in stereo back in 1940, which was rarely done. And they couldn't really afford to do it for any of the other musical numbers. Uh, but the film is in mono, but they've isolated uh, – and I think it was done maybe as a test or something. But anyway, the sequence has been uh, put on here as an extra, Do the Lakanga. In stereo. So, uh, anyway, this is, uh, like I said, from 1940, Strike Up the Band. And the other one is Girl Crazy, and that's from 1943. And it has also an introduction by Mickey Rooney and con- commentary by historian John Fricky. Just the difference in time, in the era. Mickey Rooney was the sex symbol of the of that era. Yes, I mean, he he had women fawning over him left and right. That he did. I mean, that's just like a, I don't know, it's so vastly different <laughs> time period. <laughs> this is true. Uh, we also have the uh, the 1940 adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, starring Greer Garson and Lawrence Olivier, mm-hmm. also Marino Sullivan. 
This has a has an Oscar-nominated classic cartoon as an extra. The Fishing Bear, or I'm sorry, the Oscar-nominated Crime Does Not Pay, Short, and Eyes of the Navy, and the classic cartoon, The Fishing Bear. There we go, and the trailer. So anyway, considered to be one of the best versions of Pride and Prejudice. There you go. That's All those are Warner Archive releases. David Niven is Old Dracula from 1975, considered to be one of the worst Dracula Old Dracula? Films. That's the name of it? Clive. Yeah, it's Clive Donner and David Niven, and yeah, uh, it's a, a a Dracula spoof, but mm. not a very good one, I'm told. But anyway, uh, that has been issued as well from Vinegar Syndrome, and we have a couple of more Kino titles here: Lorenzo's Oil from 1992, directed by George Miller and starring Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon. A couple trying to find a cure for their son's illness. Mm-hmm. Man, course, Nick Nolte um, chews the blends off the camera in that one. He is just <laughs> he is just eating that role alive. <laughs> putting putting on that Italian accent or whatever he's working with, and he's just man, he's he's sweating up a storm. He's working that <laughs> <laughs> like the Michael Bolton of acting in that film. <laughs> It's like his head is like one big boil by the end of it. <laughs> he doesn't only chew the chew the uh, the scenery; he swallows up the carpet and the drapes and yeah. Uh, yeah. Errol Flynn, Maureen O'Hara, and Anthony Quinn. Uh, they star in another Kino release, Against All Flags, from 1952. Uh, the River from 1984. C.C. Spacek, Mel Gibson, and Scott Glenn. Mm-hmm. And uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the original from 1916, has wow. been issued. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an old, uh, really an oldie, I guess you would say. Um, the Public Eye from 1992, starring Joe Pesci and Barbara Hershey. That's interesting. Yeah, these uh, these take you back to, to an interesting time, right? Uh, we have uh, The Shakedown from 1929, another Kino release. And A Million Dollar Mermaid is another Warner Archive release. This one's starring Esther Williams and Victor Mature and Walter Pidgeon. And um, one more Kino release is Hannibal Brooks from 1969, starring Oliver Reed and Michael J. Pollard and featuring a score by um, Francis Lay. So... Or Francis Lie, however you pronounce it. Anyway, Raggedy Man from 1981, starring CC Space. That's Aaron a good Robert. score right there. That's a good Jerry Goldsmith score. I didn't realize Goldsmith did that one. I'd forgotten that. I guess. I'm pretty sure probably. I'm right. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right, but I probably forgot that. I uh, I've yeah. never seen Raggedy Man. It used to be on cable all the time, and I never did. Uh, never did. Jack Fisk directed it. Uh, Terrence, yeah, it's her husband. Terrence Malick's um, longtime production designer, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They met on the set of, uh, didn't they meet on the set of Badlands or something? Or maybe yeah. it was. Yeah. Some, yeah, Badlands. Yeah. Been still married, still together all these years later. So Slave of the Cannibal God is a 1978 film. Uh, also known as Mountain of the Cannibal God. And this is uh, two cuts of this film being released by Code Red, which is distributed by Kino Lorber. So there you go. Um, Code of the Freaks is a Kino Lorber documentary on the story of Hollywood's exploitation of disability. Oh, wow. 
in uh, yeah, this one's uh, a fairly recent one, but it uses a lot of archived footage from over uh, spanning over a hundred years of movie making. Code of the Freaks. And um, getting to the tail end of all this, just about done here uh, with our releases for July. But I think there's um, there's maybe one or two more here. We have uh, the Wild Wild World of Jane Mansfield. Wow. Is a a documentary that was made not long after her passing. I think the next year. Uh, this is a oh, uh, it's a Severin Films release. Yeah, it's uh, uh, people on a viewer a review of her last world tour, and then it has some posthumous footage of the family in mourning, uh, at, also in the film. But anyway, anyway, it was uh, made to released the year after her death in a car accident in '67. Huh. Wild Well World of Jane Mansfield, and one more uh, Severin releases Mondo Balordo starring Boris Karloff from 1967. And, uh, oh, and one more, we have Oliver Reed in the system directed by Michael Winner from 1964. And that's a Kino release. And that about does it for the, the July releases. Michael Winner. Yes. Chicken dinner. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had an interesting career. A, yeah, he did. Serious he's, he's titles. The one that brought us all that that vigilante uh, trend. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's quite a marked difference between the original Death Wish and Death Wish 2, I would say. So a difference in quality. Mm. <laughs> you went more for the exploitation, I think, as the years rolled Man, on. I remember taking my grandfather to a dollar theater to see Death Wish 4. Oh jeez! By, by that time, it was like, "What the fuck is going on with this <laughs> series?" <laughs> oh man, that's great. Hey, we had a question from a YouTube listener. They want to know, "What's up with True Lies? Has that ever been released on Blu-ray? When is it getting to Blu-ray?" Okay, I'll be happy to answer that. Actually, uh, that was supposed to be released last year. Uh, they had uh, James Cameron had uh, tweeted actually that they needed 12 hours of his time to color correct the uh, footage. It, it's been remastered, but they needed his approval. And he claimed at the time that he just did not have 12 hours to spare, but was hoping to get to it by the year's end. And so uh, he never got to it. And The Abyss was another one that he was. they were working on them simultaneously. So work has been done. Restoration work has been done. They were supposed to be out, but he apparently has not approved those transfers yet. Um, there are some rumblings that it may be this year. It's nothing official yet, but but the uh, it is in the pipeline. And um, with now with Disney owning the Fox properties, uh, I don't know if that's going to have any uh, bearing on what becomes because those are both Fox films. So I don't know. But uh, restoration work has been completed. They're just waiting on James Cameron to approve. So I hope that that helps yeah, anybody. He's too busy living in Navi. Yeah. For the next twenty years. Yes. Good and what Lord. do you think about that? He said they've uh, they pushed the release of Avatar 2 up another year, I think. So Yeah, I heard that because of the crowded calendar for obvious reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would like to see True Lies and the Abyss uh released on Blu-ray sometime soon. So <laughs> very crisp uh photography in True Lies. Russell mm -hmm. Russell Carpenter, I'm sure did it. I'm pretty sure did the photography he, I think so yeah 
Yeah, I always thought of that movie as very, very, very like crisp whites and grays and blues and yeah. Yeah, um, I, I I think it would benefit from a Blu-ray transfer for sure. But yeah, they uh, I think I think they're aware of the of the um, desire for people to get that on on Blu-ray. I think it's turned up on HBO at some point recently in in high def. So there there is a high def television master that's being used, but I don't know if that uh, has any similarity to the one they're working on for the Blu-ray. So anyway, hopefully we'll have some positive news if I hear of anything, any developments. I will definitely let people know. So all right, my friend, thank you for another exciting episode of the Blue Report. <laughs> 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 uh.